Where are you? Your office looks more and more like a tenured professor. Every time I see your back. Do I look smart? Do you want to give me your money, Eric? Is that what I, I do, yeah. There's a lot more framed things and books behind you. So I feel like you are incredibly intelligent and trustworthy. Yeah, I'm in, I have a, we have a townhouse. I'm in my office, but I got these lovely bookshelves. So these, the newspapers you see along the back wall, which I'll describe there. The first one is the Kennedy assassination. The second one is the moon landing. The third one is the Wall Street Journal on the day I was born. The 1987 flash crash. University of Tennessee national championship year and 9-11. So it's, this is my black swan montage of like the black, the black swan over nice. my lifetime and before. Hello again, my friends, and welcome to Jorgensen Soundbox. This is where I try to share everything that I learned, which might be useful to you. Almost everything I learn is from smart friends I have met along the way, and today is exactly that. Uh, my guest is Taylor Pearson. He's the principal and co-founder of the Mutiny Fund. Uh, Taylor Pearson and Jason Buck started the Mutiny Fund to build more robust, anti-fragile portfolios after the global financial crisis. And Taylor has thought more about sort of black swans, complexity theory, and all of these uh anti-fragile Talibian ideas than anybody else that I know. Um, so I'm very excited to kind of dig into some of those with him. I've had a hard time trying to understand the implementation of some of these sort of uh, long volatility investment strategies. And this is a great conversation just for me personally to kind of dig into some of those. Um, and, and Taylor taught me a lot. Taylor has also uh, taught me a lot about publishing books. Uh, he's an author himself. His first book was called The End of Jobs, um, which talks about sort of convexity theory and money and meaning and freedom in how you build your career. And it's been really interesting to see him sort of study these things and then apply them himself. Uh, it was an Amazon bestseller. Is an amazing book. Uh, I hope you pick it up. He's working on another, uh, which we talk about a little bit as well. He's just a really interesting dude. Taylor's worked all over the world. He's lived a few different lives. He's an excellent marketer. He's a brilliant writer and just a curious, deep thinker and great investor. I think you'll hear some ideas in here that you have never heard anyone say before. And that's that's what it's all about. I've learned a ton from Taylor. I'm excited to share his ideas with you. And I hope you learned something from him too. Please enjoy this conversation arriving at your ears after one quick message from a sponsor. And that sponsor, is the Founders Podcast. It's one of my favorite discoveries of the past few months. David Senra is the host. He's a biography reading machine. It is his obsession. He's read hundreds of entrepreneurs' biographies from all across history. And this podcast is him talking through notes, quotes, and key insights from each book. My favorite aspect is how he manages to connect stories between people like Dr. Seuss, Stephen King, and Charlie Munger. This guy is a human encyclopedia. And if you don't have time to read every single new biography that comes out, David's high quality recaps uh, are absolutely the next best thing. He gets you through a book in about an hour, maybe 90 minutes if it's a big one and super dense, valuable time full of insight. This is a paid podcast. Uh, you'll get access to the whole back catalog with hundreds of episodes for $99 a year or lifetime access for $2.99 and he puts out a new episode basically every week. I've listened to a dozen episodes now. Just today, I was listening to Stephen King on writing and I learned, I was blown away. He is in the top 25 selling authors of all time, which I didn't realize. 350 million books sold. 
in part because he started at such a young age, learning writing through copy work, working at a newspaper where he learned to be concise. And even if you don't care about writing, David does an amazing job translating some of the lessons he pulls from Stephen King into creative work more generally in entrepreneurship and other entrepreneurs like Dr. Seuss and Steve Jobs. Learning through biographies is, is important to me, something two heroes of mine, Charlie Munger and Mark Andreessen both advocate and that I love to do. And the Founders Podcast is an amazing way to get those lessons in a really high signal way. Go to founderspodcast.com to learn more and sign up. You can listen to 30-minute sample episodes or purchase the paid feed. Again, it's founderspodcast.com. The link is in the show notes, but if you just search in any podcast listener, which you probably have, you will find it. It is the white founder script on black background. Thank you so much for supporting our sponsors who help make this show possible. David does incredible work, and I appreciate you checking it out. Another way to support the show, have some fun and be a part of the action we talk about here is to invest alongside me and my partners in startups and early stage tech companies. I started an early stage investment fund called Rolling Fun this year with two of my most talented and trusted friends. We've been angel investing for years and together managed to invest in a few billion dollar companies and start to really believe in our track record. So we started to open up a fund for investment that lets us accept your money, invest it alongside ours in some of these companies. And we always just seek to invest in the most promising early stage tech companies we can find around the world. If you enjoy this episode, thinking about the future prospects of businesses, how to value these things, how to allocate your capital, you may enjoy learning about that. And I've got podcast episodes with Bo and Al where you can learn more about Rolling Fun. I'm having conversations with investors now. I'm honored that many of you readers and listeners have already joined the fund as co-investors. You can learn more at rolling.fun, which is linked in the show notes below, and accredited investors can join through AngelList today. Please reach out if you have any questions. Now, on with the show. So if I ask you, like, what is your specific knowledge? Like, what what are you uniquely, like, good at and excel at? Do you, do you think, is that the answer? Is like expressing this idea of like surprise outcomes of complex systems? Yeah, I think, so. I guess the way I typically think about it is, you know, my first job was in marketing. I worked in marketing and operations at a few startups and did some consulting on that. And then I mostly do, I run a fund now, do marketing operations roles, uh, kind of that, that side of the fund, as long as with some of the investment strategy, but my partner's the, the main sort of investment strategy person. But I think what's that sort of mentality of how I look at the marketing and how I look at everything else, that's the lens that's unique and kind of how I approach it differently. So yeah, I think that's that's sort of been the central organizing insight for me. It's crazy that whole careers can come out of one one insight well understood or, or one sort of kernel of an idea. Do you mind listing that you said it has like taken a bunch of different forms? I think that's probably a good way to like talk through all of the various stuff that you've done, because I think it compiles to a really interesting sort of career trajectory. And I'd love to kind of explore like the arc of your career projects and the big ideas that drove each one. Yeah. So, so I started my career in marketing. I was a search engine optimization specialist at a marketing agency in Memphis, Tennessee, which is where I grew up. So I, I had a history degree. I moved home after college because I graduated into the global financial crisis with a history degree from a third tier university, right? So like not, not a lot of job prospects. 
I bought a couple books on SEO and read them and I built some websites and ranked them. I was, uh, but I, I decided on college furniture and I was ranking for a bunch of terms around like buying college furniture. And so I, I, I don't know, I was making 500 bucks a month or something off this website, but I took it to a marketing agency. I was like, Hey, I'm like, okay, at SEO, I built this college furniture website. It was like collegefurniture.net or something. And so that, that was how I kind of got my first job and worked there, worked in marketing at a couple at a, another, um, startup in California for a few years after that. And I guess kind of maybe the first incarnation of like, it's called the anti-fragility, the complexity stuff was I published a book in 2015, that company I was working for got sold and it was called the end of jobs and just kind of looking at the future of work careers. And I think really it was like me trying to work out applying this idea of, I'm just going to call like complexity as a shorthand for sort of like the, the thing we're talking about, complex systems. This idea of like complexity to careers, right? And so I think one of the things that was interesting for me and motivating for writing that book was I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. I went to school at like a small school in Alabama. And uh, like I, all the career paths were these just like the, the things I knew as like lawyer, accountant, work at Wells Fargo as a middleman. You know, that's what most of my, that's what people were doing. They were graduating from there. And I sort of like stumbled into this marketing thing and the internet and this whole thing. And I was like, wow, like the economy isn't this like stagnant thing where like everyone's just accountants forever. It's this like really dynamic thing where it's like, you know, I remember like telling uh, my parents that I was like, oh, I got this job doing SEO. And they were like, what is SEO? Like, what, you know what I mean? Like this was like, you know, circa what, 2010 to 2011. And I, was, I had like find these articles that like, convinced them this was a real job. I was like, no, I like, you know, do these things to websites and like it helps people find them on Google and that's like valuable and like people pay for that. I never heard of it. And, uh, you know, I could do that because no one had a degree in SEO, right? No one in 2008 was offering SEO degrees because just what, you know, it wasn't a thing, right? It was, it was totally novel. And so that, that was sort of the first encouraged, like, okay, how do we take this idea of complexity and think about like how it applies to careers and how careers are changing and kind of like to your point of leverage, like a lot of it was about like, Hey, this internet thing is like pretty cool and you can get a lot of leverage doing things here that you couldn't before, right? You know, I, all these businesses that were basically serving previously unservable markets, right? I'm selling this seemingly niche product, which I couldn't open a store in, you know, Memphis or something selling custom cat furniture. But like, if you can sell to the entire world, custom cat furniture is actually like a pretty decent business, right? Like you can, a lot of people have cats and they want to have nice furniture to, you know, have their litter boxes in or whatever. And, so you uh, can finally live your dream of selling custom cat furniture. Yeah, that actually one of the companies I worked for, we did sell custom cat furniture. So I know, I know a fair about them. Oh no, uh, shit! <laughs> High end cat furniture market. Yeah, yeah. I really thought you were um, make, just making that up. But, no, Zika, we shared parking equipment and uh, cat furniture was our two main product lines. So it was a uh, dynamic. You're just living in that long tail, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> right, though. I mean, that, and that was the lesson, right? It was like. Wow, there's like a whole business that we sell like cat furniture and parking equipment. It's like two things I'd never even thought about in my life as like things you could make money doing or whatever. And so that I guess that was kind of iteration number one. I think kind of one of the ongoing projects for me, just in general, with at, at that point I started doing some consulting. It's like kind of similar marketing operations type stuff. And again, just like kind of taking that complexity lens to it. I think that's always been sort of the unique way. I've approached things. And then over time, that just kind of branched into investing. I got interested in investing. And particularly, I know like the crypto stuff, I sort of, I went to a meetup. Actually, I, it was when I was moving to Austin, 
it was like spring of 2014. I was at this meetup at a coffee shop, actually, that I live like next door to now. And uh, there was a guy there who worked for Rootstock, which was one of the, it's like a Bitcoin sidechain. And I was like, what's this like Bitcoin thing? And um, anyway, we spent like three hours. He was, you know, I had no idea what it was. He spent three hours explaining it to me. And I, I got really interested in that as well. So that, that's kind of been one iteration, I think, like you think about sort of the complexity and the system dynamics and, and uh, all that sort of stuff, like crypto, Web3, Bitcoin, whatever you want to call it, is like a really interesting expression yeah. of all that. So that, and that's going to be your second book, right? You're still working on that? Yeah. yeah so I, I started work. I did. I have a 70% done book that was 70% done in uh, 2019 that's still uh, waiting around for finish. It's, it's a very annoying question to ask an author, I know, and I should know better, but I, I remember talking to you about that years ago. I mean, and it must be really hard to write about something that's evolving so quickly. Yeah, it is. I don't... I, so I wrote, I, I did write like a summary. The, the working title of the book is Markets Reading the World. I wrote a blog post called Markets Reading the World that was kind of a summary of, of what I want to talk about with the book. The, I guess this is like one particular rabbit hole, but there's this like kind of, I guess, subfield of economics called transaction cost economics. Like the big person everyone knows is Ronald Coase, who wrote the papers called like the theory of the firm or the nature of the firm. That was like sort of the birth of transaction cost economics. And it's like sort of very relevant to the internet and crypto because his question was like, why do we have firms? Like if markets are so efficient, shouldn't we all just be like engaging in market transactions? You know, why, why do we have these like, you know, you can almost think of like companies as these like little socialist hierarchies within this like broader capitalist system. And his answer to that was transaction cost. Um, that, you know, if I'm theoretically, there's uh, 20 tasks I need done. There's one person that could do each of those the best, but the cost to Search, negotiation, and enforcement are like the three major ones, right? So I have to like find the person that's going to do it. I have to like negotiate the contract for how they're going to do the thing, and I have to enforce the contract. And uh, you know that was functionally prohibitively expensive, right? So it's like you don't hire a new person for every little task done. You hire someone, and even if they're not utilized 100 of the time, it's still cheaper because you don't incur those transaction costs. And so I got into that idea sort of writing the end of jobs because all of a sudden the internet changed a lot. Like we look at. Upwork, Uber, like the whole idea of the gig economy is basically a way of saying like transaction costs went down. And so lots of work that was done via firms became via being marketized, so to speak. Um, and so that was kind of the, the idea of marketing the world. And I think if you look at crypto web three stuff, the whole notion of smart contracts, it just feels like an extension of that same thing to me. It's like now all of a sudden, you know, if you think about like probably the main transaction cost the internet brought down was like search and kind of negotiation, right? So it's like, I can go to Upwork and I can type Excel specialist into Upwork and it's going to pull up 50 qualified people with specific credentials, blah, blah, blah. And then you think about like, in a way, Upwork and Uber are really like many nation states, right? There's like a rule of law. If you're engaging it, like there's, a, there's effectively a court system, right? Like I'm hiring someone on Upwork. We have some dispute about how that contract is enforced and they functionally have the equivalent of a court, right? They mediate that dispute. They make some ruling, they assess damages one way or the other, and that kind of goes on. And so that was really interesting. And then I think when I saw crypto, I was like, oh, now we could do all that through these, this notion of like smart contracts and we could basically lower the enforcement cost, right? It's like when I engage, I engage in a, some transaction with someone on the Bitcoin blockchain, the Ethereum blockchain, whatever, 
I have all the security guarantees that are inherent in the nature of that blockchain, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm in a sense like that is now my court of law, or that is now the, the sort of enforcement mechanism for the transaction I want to do. So yeah, I mean, that was a, a long rambling thing, but I guess that was kind of one of the, the side pieces of like the complexity thing is like how, how these networks, how work is organized, like the sort of network structure of it and where it goes. And then coming back to the idea of like emergence, right? Just like what new possibilities does unlock, right? Like in the same way the internet meant you could sell cat furniture or parking equipment or whatever. I think I got really excited about the crypto stuff. It's like, oh, what new possibilities can we now unlock that I can engage in a transaction with someone that I have, I don't know anything about. I'm not relying on any sort of trusted intermediary like an Upwork or an Uber or whoever to intermediate that transaction. It's just based on the language of the contract and the, the guarantees of whatever the underlying blockchain are. Yeah, I, I think that transaction cost economics is a really good lens to look at crypto through. That like that is how I explain it to probably total lay people. Is like, hey, things that used to be expensive and analog are going to get turned into software. You, you've seen that happen with the internet and software the first time. It's going to now happen to transactions and financialization of things and hopefully legal contracts. You know, the, the, through smart contracts in a big way. It's it is by measure of actual impact, still really, really, really early in that. But it is very interesting time to be kind of like trying to project out 10, 20, 30 years and see what actually happens. Uh, I think I've heard yourself, you describe yourself as like softly technologically determinist or something like that. So like starting with the technology and then thinking about all the downstream implications of it, like economically and culturally is, is a really interesting kind of place to start. Yeah, that, that tends to be my bias. It's like yeah, it's, it's like a very Marxist view, right? That was Marxist idea. Obviously, like you can apply it in a lot of different ways that don't lead to to Marxism. But one of the interesting ones with the crypto, the example I was thinking about is like the idea of a vending machine. I think I think Nick Zabo has like a piece on this we talked about, but like a vending machine unlocks an area of economic activity that was previously not viable. Right? So like you put a vending machine in a hotel, you couldn't afford to like staff a convenience store and like motel six right like you wouldn't make enough sales to justify the over you have to having someone be there and they have to open the shop up and drive to work and you got to pay them for that and, and blah 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 but it like works fine as as a vending machine right because like 30 whatever 20 people a day come and like buy a bag of chips or some peanuts and the vending machine is functionally a smart contract right i put a quarter in i press coca-cola that initiates a transaction it checks that the quarter was received it dispenses the coca-cola and then, you know, there's that big lock on the side that keeps you from stealing the quarter so that, you know, it's uh, sufficiently, uh, you know, those are the security guarantees of the vending machine, which is that uh, vending machines are not super exciting, but it's like, I think if you, it's kind of like the internet, it's like all these niches that just weren't economically viable previously suddenly became viable. And like in aggregate, that was huge, right? I think, um, it's been a while since I looked at the stats, but like over 50% of Amazon sales are from third-party sellers, which is to say like, not stuff they're stocking or that like a Walmart would stock from Procter and Gamble or Johnson and Johnson, right? It's like these people selling weird bespoke dog collars or whatever that in aggregate ends up being a lot. I was just looking up the long tail. I was looking up like a stuffed animal scale phone case because I thought it would be really nice to like, instead of like pinching your phone against your shoulder, like just have a whole stuffed animal there. It'd be like really yeah, easy. Or like hold to hold that in your phone instead of like cramping your hand around like a tiny. So yeah, I live I live in that long tail. Uh -oh. 
I mean, we all do now. That's that's where it is. That's, yeah, we're all we are let's all just, weird. Let's just all be the free weirdos that we want to be. Let's let's go back for a second to your your first book because I think I've had a similar experience in the sense of like you have an inkling. Like, I guess, how much of that book did you learn as you wrote? As you were kind of like, I I feel like I I'm squinting and I can see something and I need to like figure it out. And you're like writing your way towards something, and you ended up kind of like writing the playbook for the rest of your career, right? Is it like, I feel like you started to describe that and then we went off in a different direction, but I think that's such an interesting thing. Yeah. I think it was just such like a novel. I mean, just seeing, working with these internet businesses, I just wanted to like explain it to, you know, my friends from growing up really, right. It's like, Hey, like the world doesn't work exactly like we all thought it worked. It actually works. There's these kind of new different things you can do. And so I knew there was like, there was something interesting there. And they were just like the long tail. I read a bunch about that. And so I had some sort of like uh, inklings of what it was. But for me, for sure, writing is very much like a figure it out as you go along process. What, you know, I was like trying to figure out, yeah, what it meant and how it worked and, and all that kind of stuff. So it was, it was definitely sort of a, an emergent phenomenon, if you will. Yeah. And was that book, publishing that book, a big, I don't know, inflection point in your, your career or how it worked. It was, it was like your first product, right? It sounded like you were consulting and working yeah. pretty much before that. That's right. Yeah. I, I was, I was like doing consulting stuff at the time and that was the first sort of product. It was definitely a big inflection point. I think it was, I, know, I guess it, it put me on the map in some way with certain, you know, a certain subset of people. And I think probably gave me a lot of confidence that I could like, about my writing and just general career stuff. I was like, oh, this is like, this worked, right? Like I sold a decent number of copies of this thing and people liked it. And so I think a big thing in, in that sense. And I think too, it, got, it was definitely the jumpstart for sort of my, I guess I had a blog at the time. I want to say I had like 250 subscribers or something, right? So it was like mostly buddies, you know? It was like, it was like some of my friends from college and like people I've, you know, like lose professional contacts and writing. I went to like 15,000 overnight. I was like, wow, it's a lot of people. That's cool. What should I do? So I, it was a big inflection point for me in that sense. I was like, okay, there's sort of like a community here or an audience and wanted to sort of like nurture that and make something of that and, and like build it out as an asset. So I think I, I saw one of the companies that I worked for, the founders had a podcast and I just like saw how powerful that was. Like I just, I looked at their podcast and all the things that accomplished for them and the people they met and the doors that opened. And I was like, you know, and this was, they had a pod. It was like one of the top ten business podcasts at the time because, like, it was 2012, right? No one had a podcast. <laughs> there were only nine podcasts, like it, yeah. <laughs> right, they literally there were like 32 <laughs> podcasts in the entire business section of iTunes because <laughs> it was like so clunky and hard to use, and people didn't have podcast players, kind of thing. And so it was like it made a huge difference for them, even though podcasts were at the like I didn't know anyone else listened to podcast. Like, I was listening to podcasts, and I was like, oh, I'm listening to podcasts. People were like, what is a podcast? So I, I think it was it was I, it sort of set me on that path and i've kind of always viewed that as sort of the hub so to speak kind of like that that's kind of like the hub and then i branched out and kind of done these other projects over the yeah your, your newsletter is still amazing i the, the interesting times i open all the time it's like good links summaries of things i don't know i just feel like this idea that you have been refining is a really interesting way to look at the world and it, it's kind of explains a bunch of events that you don't really expect to have explained to you or certainly like not in the way that you frame things. So yeah, I've, I've enjoyed it for 
for a very long time. All right. So what, what are the other branches that we go off from the newsletter? I guess what in your mind, what's the next sort of, I don't know, inflection point maybe uh, after that first book? Yeah. So I guess kind of chronologically, probably the next inflection point was, so as I got interested in the crypto stuff and I started writing about the crypto stuff in kind of early 2017. I remember I like, of course, like the interest always follows the price action, right? So I think, like, I think towards the end of 2016, like Bitcoin Delta, it went from like 200 to 400 or something. And I like owned a couple of Bitcoin. I was like, oh, that's cool. What happened there? And so I got really interested, started reading a lot about it. And then, uh, you know, to become a crypto expert circa mid 2017, you had to like read three blog posts and you knew yeah. what the bar was very low. You had to actually read the um, white paper. Yes. Yeah, right. Exactly. If you'd read like the Ethereum and the Bitcoin white paper, it was like top 1%. You know what I mean? You could do it like a weekend. And yeah, so I, I got really, I started writing about that. And I wrote mostly about crypto stuff sort of 2017, 2018. Um, maybe into 2019 as well was when I was kind of like working on the book. And so that was kind of like the next big phase for me. And so that was all the transaction costs and just thinking about how, and that, that was kind of, again, it's just like an extension of the same idea from the end of jobs, looking at how this affects work and how this affects structure of systems and all that kind of stuff. And then that kind of also led me into just investing and trading. I got really interested in finance. And I think like, you know, you talk about complex systems ecosystems or cities and if you're like interested in that topic like it's hard to find a more fertile sort of field of study than like markets right like it's just it's an incredibly complex super dynamic always evolving system it's a really good lens to talk about the things i want to talk about because people like money right so if you can explain things in a way we're like you know this helps it's, me make better financial decisions that's very compelling. Yeah. it's quantified in a way that you know cities aren't and contemporary in a way that history and war isn't. So yeah, makes sense. And so, yeah, so I, I got interested and I kind of wanted to do some more stuff in, um, in crypto or finance or something in that space. And I was working on my book and then I met uh, my now business partner who basically had this idea for what became Mutiny Fund. Um, how did you guys meet? I'm always curious to hear those, those stories. I feel like people gloss over that a lot, but it's like a huge yeah. blocker for people who have not yet been through that. So yeah, a good, a good example of like leverage option. We was like through a friend on Twitter, basically. I co-wrote a post on stable coins with a friend of mine and, uh, he read it. This is like 2018, I think. And, uh, so we started talking about stable coins and then, yeah, anyway, he, he basically had this I was looking at investing in a particular strategy that was the first kind of strategy we launched with. He had been trading that strategy and we kind of connected over that and started talking about it and uh, grew out of that. But what was that uh, strategy? So it was uh, long volatility. So I got, I'll insert my financial disclaimer here that nothing we say is financial advice. Talk to your financial advisor. Markets are risky. You can lose all your money. But especially with, with stable way, coins. Yeah. Especially, <laughs> especially with stable coins. Especially with stable coins. So the... The initial idea was, um, or the initial concept was a, a sort of very like Taleb-esque approach to long volatility, right? So it's it's basically a strategy where the goal is most of the time you try to like break even or just lose a little bit of money. And then when everything else goes down, you make a lot of money. And so all of a sudden now you're in this very fortunate position where everyone else needs cash and asset prices are depressed and you suddenly have a lot of cash. And so we got connected over stable coins because this idea of, I guess just call it like diversification at the simplest level or like stability through volatility. But if you can take different return streams, different assets, 
which are all volatile but uncorrelated with one another, and combine them, the return stream you produce is very stable, right? So the example I typically use of this is there's an approach called the permanent portfolio. This guy came out in the 70s named Harry Brown. It's basically equal parts stock, cash, bond, and gold. And it's super simple. 25% each of those four things, you rebalance it once a year. And if you look at how that strategy performed since he came up with it in the late 70s, sort of the, the tagline is like stock-like returns with bond-like volatility, right? So you get sort of very close, very similar returns you would to an all-stock portfolio with much, much less volatility, even though the underlying components of that portfolio are volatile. And so that was kind of how we connected over stable coins, and that was our sort of mutual interest in long volatilities. You could take this negatively correlated to traditional assets thing, combine it with those, and you could produce a better portfolio. So that our, part of the initial idea was like we would use this to make a stable coin, right? We'd have this diversified basket, and it would be not stable to the US dollar or something, right? But relatively stable on like a purchasing power um, basis. So that, that was kind of how it got started. <laughs> And, and what is mutiny funds today? So I, I want to like explore a lot of that stuff, but I don't want to skate over the setup for the all of these different vehicles. Yeah. So our first product was as I said, basically a long volatility strategy. Uh, yeah. We're basically a fund to fund, so we we invest in other long volatility hedge funds and aggregate them together. Um, and again, it's uh, we call it you know diversify your diversifiers, right? So if you have instead of having you're know, going back to the permanent for example, it's having these four big buckets. It's like what if you could diversify within the buckets? And then you know you get you yeah. get more of the same effect, and so that that was the first thing. So we'll diversify within diversification. So that's like what within your twenty five percent gold, you have like part gold, part nickel, part Bitcoin, part like sort of all of the you, you split up within sort of the characteristics of gold. Yeah, so I, I use like long volatility strategies as an example. There's a lot of different ways to trade long volatility. There's trying to get like too super wonky here, but like you can trade like what are called like relative value strategies where you're like using um, the VIX, which is the volatility index. There's VIX futures financial instrument. You can trade options. You can trade those options in many different types of ways. And so one of the interesting things we found when we were researching this space is you had a lot of these strategies that were uncorrelated with each other most of the time. But they all became correlated with each other in the correct way when you had like a major risk off event. And so by taking them that were uncorrelated with each other most of the time and combining them, you could create, call it like a ratchet like effect, but it basically improves your, if you can do that, it improves your risk adjusted returns. So, like, this is like a, a toy example or something, but it's mathematically possible. You could have, let's say, three assets that are uncorrelated, you know, fairly uncorrelated with each other. They all have a 0% expected return, but if the path they take is uncorrelated and you rebalance between them, you will create a positive return. And so like, like another example I was reading in a blog post recently, it's easy. It's, I think from like 19, these dates are going to be off, but ballpark, 1962 to 1982, the total return on stocks was 4% and the total return on gold was 4.5% or something. But if you just like rebalance between the two every year, your return was 4.9%. So same underlying, you're just only two things, but because those things are uncorrelated and you rebalance between them, you can improve the risk adjusted return. So that's, you know, they talk about like diversification is the only free lunch investing. Like that's the free lunch, right? You're not taking any more risk. You're owning the same two things, but your, your risk adjusted returns, if those things are uncorrelated, 
ends up being significantly better. That was kind of the organizing insight for how we structured everything. So we started with the long volatility piece, which tried to take that approach to long volatility of this thing that has that characteristic of it does well when most other things tend to do badly, but then having diversification within that basket. And then currently, our main product is called the Cockroach Fund, which basically takes that to the next level, which is so it combines similar to Harry Brown's permanent portfolio, which was kind of our inspiration. It combines long volatility commodities, stocks, and bonds. So it's different and that it diversifies, diversifies. So like, you know, instead of using just gold as your commodities, you know, we're trading a hundred plus different commodity markets, right? So that, again, you have that same characteristic of there's not a lot of correlation there. And so you can, um, you can sort of harvest that rebalancing premium while still serving sort of that fundamental role of commodities in the portfolio. And then you're kind of, you know, stocks and bonds are relatively easy to diversify. If you have an ETF at this point, but sort of combining those all into a broad portfolio tries to get that better risk-adjusted return like you would from having these uncorrelated bets. So this is something I, I remember, I think I've read all of Talib's books, at least the, the aside from the statistical, like incredibly math dense one. And, and I got really enamored with the idea of like long volatility and starting to kind of drink the Kool-Aid of the complex systems. And I went down this path of like trying to figure out how to, how to actually like as an individual retail investor, like place that bet like i kind of wrapped my head around a long volatility strategy and i still couldn't really figure out how to either access it or use it in the context of a broader portfolio because like i think and please like correct me if i'm wrong anywhere along here but like it is at least used by hedge funds as a small fraction of their strategy so that they are sort of balanced against some crazy event it's not like they have a a big chunk of it and i just couldn't figure out how to access it or how to like fit it into the rest of the portfolio so how do you how do you see this strategy like fit into everything else yeah so that's kind of part of the reason we started right is it is there are funds that specialize in this as with most hedge funds you know the minimums tend to be somewhere between one and 20 million dollars and if you want some diversification you know you're going to write three five million dollar checks and then you don't want to be all your portfolio. Let's say you want to be a quarter of your portfolio. So now you're talking about you have to have $60 million to be able to like put some portfolio and size it appropriately. And so that was kind of the problem we were solving with long volatility. Is like, you know, we we would combine these at a at our level and we could give much smaller retail investors or uh, you know, non-institutional investors access to these strategies. So yeah, it, and it is super hard. People do try and trade this themselves. You can do that. It's really hard. I've tried to do it. You know, we've been on that road. But you know, the, the people that are doing that fairly successfully, right, are quantitative teams, you know, it's with three PhDs on there that have like a robust order system and, and all this sort of stuff. So it is, we feel it's like it is one area where active management still is justified, right? It's, just, it's not something that's like super retail accessible. And then in terms of like how it fits in the portfolio, it's interesting. No one like I mean, I think part of the reason, part of the reason the strategy has worked historically, in my opinion, is it kind of like sucks as an investor because you mostly lose money. And if you've read something like Clive has some lines in his book where he's like, you're just so sick of like explaining to all these investors. They're like, oh well we lost money in a month. He's like, yeah, you're gonna lose money like 99 out of hundred months. Like that's how the strategy works. And that is how the strategy works. You know, and you can do some things to try to mediate that. But if you look at it, you know, it's most investors, I think this is like one of the biggest mistakes investors make, is they look at their portfolio as a series of line items. 
and they want to pick the best line items, right? And so like, this is how you get into return shooting. Like, I own these 10 things, and these three things went up the most last year. So I'm going to buy more of those things. And really, you should think about the portfolio holistically of, you know, how do these things interact with one another, right? So the idea of long volatility in the portfolio is, even if it has zero expected return, over a 10-year period, it makes no money. If it makes money when everything else in the portfolio goes down, it allows you to rebalance at the optimal time, basically buy everything else when it's less, and then use some of those profits as those things go back up to get back into the long volatility. So it's that, that rebalancing effect that creates the sort of whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And the goal that it serves is, is something I've seen, I think I've seen you write about a few times, like the, the thousand year portfolio or the hundred year portfolio, like it is extremely like, it is geared towards people with a very long-term view and a very low, like not active investors. Like it feels like almost the level up from a passive index of like, just be a little more deliberate with your portfolio construction and think about a very long-term time horizon. Yeah. Yes and no. So like, I think there's, you know, if you look at this, this is like a super standard thing in finance theory, they have this idea of like the efficient frontier, right? So it's like, what combination of these assets gets me the most return per unit of, of risk? And usually risk is defined as volatility, which I have some issues with, but you know, we can sort of press that aside, but just thinking about it basically as like return per unit of risk. So the optimal portfolio, or sort of according to this theory, is you want to get the best risk-adjusted returns, and you want to apply leverage to get whatever your return targets are. So it's just the best risk-adjusted returns is this much stocks, this much bonds, this much gold, which you want to get higher returns. Well, then you use a little bit of leverage and you do that. In practice, people... So you kind of have two ways of getting higher returns. You can either take leverage risk, right? You can have a diversified portfolio that uses leverage, or you can take concentration risk, right? You can buy super risky assets that might go up a lot and, you know, but super country and tech stocks and, and whatever. And kind of the financial theory, everything suggests that having a highly diversified thing and using a modest amount of leverage is a better long-term risk-adjusted return than taking a lot of the concentration risk. And so that's sort of the approach we take. And I think a lot of people, I think the strategies aren't super popular because people don't like long volatility because it usually loses money. And people don't like, people generally seem to prefer concentration risk over leverage risk. But all that to say, I think, I think a lot of times it's because it's like, oh, well, diversification is like, that's something I do if I'm going like, to be conservative and I'm going to be safe and I'm like not going to try and, and do super well. And like, I mean, if you do like, it's mathematically just not correct, actually. It is a log wealth maximizing strategy. There's this whole idea that's like the Kelly criterion and bet sizing that was developed by, uh, was his name Ed Kelly? I can't, Ed Thorpe was the one that kind of like popularized it. But he was an engineer at Bell Labs and he did it with uh, Blackjack initially, was I think where he sort of developed. But basically the idea is if you're, you have a coin flip and you have, let's say that, or you have a loaded dice and let's say you have a slight edge in the loaded dice, how much of your bankroll do you want to bet on the dice? So you, you're cheating, right? So you have an edge, but you could still be wrong, right? So let's say that six should six on a dice should show up 16% of the time and you load it, so you know, the six is going to show up 25% of the time. So you have a meaningful edge there, but if you bet everything you have, you're still going to be wrong three quarters of the time. You lose everything. But if you don't bet enough, you're hurting your long-term gain. You could be betting more to take more advantage of your edge. So 
he basically he solved that. That if you know your odds and you, you know your edge and you know your odds, you can calculate the mathematically correct size of your bankroll to bet. And so that's kind of, you know, in theory, that's what sort of more diversified approaches like what we do are trying to achieve in practice. It's never, you know, if you look at like really diversified portfolios, or tertiary, they just do okay all the time, which is like not super cool. It's never the best returning thing. You know, we joke, it's like we try to build the least shitty portfolio we can. And that mathematically, if you look at, at that approach, it should be the best sort of long-term wealth maximizing approach. But over any given day, month, week, year, it's going to underperform something, right? Um, something else that has more volatility is going to do better. So anyway, yeah, to your, it's a long uh, rambling answer to your question, but to your, to your earlier question, that's kind of the idea. You have said it's not super popular, but who has it been, who is attracted to this? Who is using sort of the long volatility strategy and, and how are they using it? So I would say, I think there's one category of people that we don't super try to encourage. It's like the perma bear crowd. One of, my, um, one of our back office partners has this idea of the white moose. So the white moose is the opposite of the black swan. The, the white moose is what happens when you keep betting on the black swan and it never materializes and you just sort of get chipped away. You need to have black swan and you need to have white moose, right? You need to have things that have that long volatility profile or, or sort of crisis assets, but also things that just do well most of the time and are just kind of like chugging along. And so, yeah, so one category of people is people that are just like are using it as a bet on the end of the world, which I don't think my opinion is that strategy doesn't work very well because the world usually doesn't end. And if it does, then, you know, we all have bigger problems. But I think the other group of people are just people who understand more or less what I just explained, which is, okay, this thing as a standalone investment is bad, but I own a lot of stocks, bonds, private equity, venture capital, et cetera. All those things, if you have a major risk event, tend to be correlated with each other, right? They'll tend to go, if you look at you know, 2008, all those asset classes went down. And so having something else to diversify that with that I can rebalance should improve the overall returns of the portfolio. And so I think that's, um, that's kind of the core idea. Let me see if I can recap a little bit. And yep, yeah, again, please correct me if I'm wrong, but let me, so Mutiny Funds is a fund of funds that creates a sort of anti-correlated asset with the other, the things that most people own, which is like stocks and bonds. So if you invest in Mutiny, that money ends up split among a variety, a handful of hedge funds that are actively trading a long volatility strategy which I want to have you explain like how that actually works so that if what just happened this, you know, a month ago happens again and all the tech stocks that you own go down by 80%, this other asset you've invested in through mutiny goes up by, I don't know, 3x, 5x, 10x. Like I've seen some absurd numbers come out of some of these hedge funds that are like appropriately positioned for, for crashes. But can you get into the details at all of like what those hedge funds that you invest in are doing? Like, how are they, what is that strategy look like day to day? Sure. Um, yeah. So we have, we have one fund that does that. It's a fund of funds for long volatility. And then we have another fund that invests in the long volatility fund and also does the stocks, bonds, and commodities pieces. That's sort of our total portfolio. That's the okay. cockroach fund. So um, that's kind of the, like, if you want mutiny to execute the whole strategy, you can just go in that. And if you want to 
rebalance, do your own rebalancing portfolio, then you provide just that one kind of pure, like anti-correlated asset. Correct. Yeah. I okay. guess part of the reason we launched the cockroach fund is because no one actually rebalances or in, in, in practice, people don't. And so doing it all in one place seems to work better. But yeah, no, I can go into technology. Yes, correct. We're, we're functionally a fund of funds, which I know you called was commodity pool operator. So we have different funds we work with. Most of them, we have what are called SMAs, separately managed accounts, where we basically grant them limited power of attorney to trade on our fund's behalf. And then we're, we're monitoring their trade and what they're doing. Within there, we have basically three different sub-strategies or different approaches to long volatility. The core of what we do is our long, long options bucket. And so that's sort of called, that's the purest expression of long volatility to long volatility. They're basically going out and they're buying options and those options should have a convex payoff profile, right? They're going to lose a little money most of the time and hopefully make a lot of money a little bit of the time. And I guess I could just briefly to explain what an option is. You can stop me if this is an old hat for people, but an option is sort of a, a bet on the future it's a, the right, but not the obligation to buy or sell a security at a, a specific price in the future. So functionally for long volatility strategies, you're using, using put options, which is basically a bet on the market going down, sort of akin to like insurance, right? You say, I'm going to buy a, the S&P is at 4,000. I'm going to buy a put option for 3,800. And if the S&P goes below 3,800 over whatever time period, I specify, let's say a month from now, I earn some amount of profit. On that option and that's vastly oversimplified but but that's the basic idea and you're paying a few dollars like as a percentage of that you're paying like a small fraction of what you could earn event happens right yes so d- options have there's what's called the option greeks so one of the the primary greek is called delta so a given option has a different delta so a deep i mean you can Coming off this, and I no, think no, goes I'm, I'm going to need a whiteboard. Uh, this is this um, is the, yeah, I the 301 course. Sheldon Nateberg, Option Volatility and Pricing, is on my back shelf. That's the <laughs> if you want if you want an introduction, that is the uh, that is the definitive text. So when an option is de- so, let's say I'm using my example, the S and P is trading at four thousand. Let's say I buy a put option for six thousand, right? So that option is deep in the money already. I'm betting that it's going to be below six thousand, and it's already at four thousand. So at that point. A $1 change in the underlying, the S&P in this case, tends to create a $1 change or very close, you know, very close to $1 change. And it's, it's a one delta option effectively. Because you think about it like it makes sense, right? If the S&P goes down by 5%, like it hasn't really changed the probability that that's going to finish in the money, right? Like you're very deep in the money. Now, if you go on the other side, let's say I buy S&Ps at 4,000, I buy a put option at 1,500, way out of the money. That's going to have a very low delta because if the S&P goes from 4,000 to 3,900, still probably not going down to 1,500, right? The probability of it going all the way there is a lot lower. So there's a second order Greek called gamma, uh, which is the delta of the delta effectively. And like that, that deep in the money option is going to have sort of like different gamma properties than the, the far of the money. But the basic idea is options are going to have different amounts of convexity, right? So certain, like a deep out of the money option is going to have the properties you can, if I buy the 1500 S&P call, S&P put, S&P 4,000, and the S&P goes down to 1,000, I'm going to make 200X. You know, there's going to be some, there should be some very high return, right? Because it was very deep out of the money, but other options aren't that way. So to long answer your question, but yes, there are different sort of payoff profiles with options 
that you yeah. can customize. Maybe the bigger the black swan, the bigger the magnitude of the event that you're betting on, the, the less you are paying for how much you earn as an outcome to that. Yes. Yeah. Generally, that's true. There's a bunch of caveats about transaction cost okay. and, and that kind of stuff. But yeah, I was trying to oversimplify. So I'm glad that there yeah, was no, a no, caveat no. necessary. <laughs> just, just to resummarize. Okay. So, there, so that in that, I mean, all of this complexity is why these are still actively managed funds. Like there's these, the hedge funds that you're investing in are actively like purchasing, seeking good deals on these options all the time and constantly refreshing and stacking layers of different options and trying to figure out like how to cheaply manage the strategy so that they still have a great payoff if things go down. Right. So if you, the way you usually look at options prices is they form what's called a volatility surface. So we'll stick with our example, like the S&P at 4,000. You have puts and calls, Thomas about puts, but calls are, you know, bet things can go up, puts the bets can go down. And then you have different strike prices, which is the price you're actually at. We talked about the 1500 put or the 6000 put. And then you have different expiries. So one option could be a one week expiry. You know, it has to go below 1500 in one week. And that's, that's the specific bet you make on that option. The other one could be it has to go above 4200 in six months. Right. And, and um, so if you plot, you can plot all these things three dimensionally. And it forms a volatility surface. It kind of look, if you look at like a geographic or topographic map with like a mountain, it, it kind of looks like that, right? Like it's sort of like ridges and and moves. And so, functionally, what most these managers are doing is they're they're looking for what what their sort of proprietary algorithms, experience, et cetera, are the relatively cheap parts of the volatility surface, right? So, say, oh, well, this option for the Chinese yuan, blah 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 looks relatively cheap compared to this other option. And I think it has this sort of payout profile. Um, and so that's relatively attractive. So they're all, for the most part, the hedge funds that do this are doing some form of that, right? They're looking at the volatility surface and trying to look at what are the relatively cheap parts and what are the relatively uh, expensive parts. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so the other thing that I, when I was reading more about this, and this is a few years ago now, so it was before it was before mutiny funds existed and i was just like why is there not a, a resale accessible version of this and then i just kind of gave up but i was like i was reading about it seemed to me that there should be a, a simple enough strategy i was like why isn't there like an index fund for this and then uh, someone was like have you heard of the vix i was like no and so i went and like it's like oh this is an index for this and then every single article i read about it was like do not invest in the vix it will eat your face this is a terrible way to execute this strategy like don't do it. I don't know why anyone does. Like, because that's what you're like competing with, basically, right? Like, that's the other option that's accessible to retail investors. Like, what's wrong with it? What is it? How does it work? And what's wrong with it? <laughs> so, VIX stands for volatility index. If you like pull up, uh, uh, you know, Y charts, whatever market dashboard, you can look up the VIX. You can see what it is at any given time. It gets called like the fear gauge, is like the, the general idea. But it's it's a calculation based on various option prices, S and P option prices that get fed in. And generally, the way it works is if people are are worried about bad things happening, they're willing to pay more for options, which means the VIX goes up. Or less worried, they're willing to pay less for options. The VIX goes down. The biggest misconception about the VIX is that so you actually cannot trade the VIX. It's an index. So you can't trade the VIX because no rational counterparty would ever take the other side of the trade. Because typically the VIX like stays at a certain level and then only goes up. It like never goes down below a certain level. So the CME, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, developed VIX futures, 
and VIX futures forms what's called the VIX curve, but it basically has different expiries on the VIX. So as an example, the standard, sort of the standard structure of the VIX is, let's say the VIX index is at 20 right now. One month out, the futures contract for the VIX might be at 22. So there's, some, there's a month between here and there, something bad that we don't foresee could happen. So people are willing to pay a little bit more. And then over that month, either something bad is going to happen, the VIX goes up and the price of the futures crack. Futures converges with the spot or nothing bad happens and the, the price of the futures falls. And you have, I think it goes out nine months. I can't remember how many months out the X3 goes. But the general structure of the VIX is it's a little bit higher every month, right? So it's 21, one month out, it's 22, one month, two months out, and 22.5, and so on. And then if something really bad happens, the shape tends to invert, right? So now the VIX is at 50. And it's like, well, some crazy stuff has happened, but like we probably can't keep doing crazy stuff forever. So you know, the next month is 45 and, uh, and 40 and so on. But your question about like, trading the VIX, yeah, I mean, it is, it's extremely, it's, it's extremely volatile, right? So like it's, it's very easy to get your face ripped off if you don't know what you're doing. It's very, it's very easy to get your face ripped off if you do know what you're doing. You have to really, really know what you're doing. But the, the typical challenge with a lot of passive volatility strategies historically has been they lose so much most of the time that even when they do well, it doesn't compensate. Right, so you do have to have some balance. Something that loses a little bit, but then makes a lot, is okay. But something that loses a fair amount and then only makes back a fair amount, it doesn't really work. So, sort of most of the historically, if you look at just like a naive approach to like, there are various like ETNs and stuff that that do this. It's just like hard to make the math work. Where like, yes, is it negatively correlated, but it just loses so much most of the time that it doesn't really work. Yeah, I mean the the. I mean, back to the transaction cost idea, right? Like it has to outperform by enough. And the same is true of, of the fees involved in some of these funds too, right? Like they have to outperform and outperform their own fees in those sort of adversarial environments, which I, I'm sure is part of the math, right? Like, does that add anything? I actually, I don't know how the fund of funds things works. Like, is there, do you get negotiating leverage over the, the hedge funds that you work with so that it kind of nets out for clients or is it like fees on fees yeah both um yeah we do get some negotiating leverage but obviously we assess a fee um at our level as well so yeah i guess the, i guess the reason we started this is we looked at net of all fees what is the best solution and like we think net of all fees an ensemble of active long volatility hedge funds is, is a better solution than um passive approaches but it is yeah I, you know i, I we can get do a whole conversation around passive investing and what that makes sense or whatever. But like, it's not, if your goal is to like minimize fees, you're probably not ending up in, in long volatility. But if your goal is to maximize risk adjusted returns, you know, then it might make sense. Yeah. I mean, as, as far as I can tell, there is no, there is no non-fee way to access the strategy. Really. You're the first person or the first way that I know of for retail to do it at all. And you know, the hedge funds are doing essentially the same thing and still outperforming in a lot of cases. So, yeah, th- I mean, there are various ETFs and ETNs, but as I said, they historically just hasn't worked super well as a passive strategy. Yeah. It's kind of the conclusion we came to. Interesting. Is there, are there future uh, products in the funnel for Mutiny, or you feel like this is the, the suite that you wanted to do and now you're just sort of executing and growing? Yeah, I think our vision was always, you know, I talked about like the permanent portfolio and like our, 
our sort of cockroach fund is like our our implementation of that that we feel like is just is a more modern and robust version. We you know we're just using tools. Long volatility hedge funds. Really, the VIX wasn't like tradable. Like there wasn't enough liquidity to trade the VIX until like 2010. So it's really only been around for 10 years. I think the oldest fund we invest in started in 2012, right? And that's like ancient in the long volatility world. Like most of the funds are, are much newer than that. There were some funds before that in like the, but it was historically been just like a very neat strategy. So yeah, un- universe is kind of like the classic in this sense, right? So the one that- Yes, yeah, so universe was the, the firm Taleb was associated with. They've been around one of the, I can't remember how long they've been around, maybe, maybe since the nineties or something. I don't know exactly when they, when they started with, but they're certainly one of the older ones. Most of the older funds tend to have very high minimums. So most of them work exclusive institutions, right? I think you probably there's articles in March that like CalPERS, the California pension retirement was one of the big universal clients, which ended up pulling out and uh, missing out on a bunch of, I think they pulled out in like January and they would have made a billion dollars if they'd stayed in uh, through March. But m- most of the older funds that I'm aware of tend to service like large institutional clients. That's amazing. So the, so the CalPERS is one of the biggest, I think, I don't know, pools of money in the world. It functions still exactly like you described a retail investor of like looking at them all as line items and pulling out at the exact yeah. wrong time, losing patience. With- it, when we started this, I was like, oh, I all these institutional people must be so smart and everything. And, uh, you know, I, broadly, my takeaway has been people are people and sort of the same psychological stuff. You know, it's, we have retail investors we talk with that are super savvy and like really understand everything. And, you know, institutional people that you're like, you know, did you find your money in a bag in the alleyway? Like, how how did this work? <laughs> um, so, yeah, just people are people. So, I mean, it's, it's your job, from what I understand now, to evaluate hedge funds and sort of assemble this super team of, of super people who you know are going to execute. I'm sure there's layers to the evaluation of you know, what's the strategy, what's the approach, how's it executed, who are the people. But sort of what, what is that? process like for you? What do, what do you look for in the hedge funds that you assemble? Yeah. So I, one of the first things you want to know is how it, we kind of look how, again, we, we always start from this like sort of holistic portfolio view. So we always, in the context of long volatility specifically, we want to look at like how it compares to the other managers. So I mentioned, I so said we had three different buckets. The one I mentioned was long volatility. We have another one that's uh, called volatility arbitrage. It's going long and short volatility. Um, again, starting to find the relatively expensive volatility and sell it in the relatively cheap volatility and go long it so that um, it can make money in, in both up and down volatility environments. And then we have a short futures bucket. So we all those, and then within each of those buckets, there's diversification, right? So there's different, there's different ways. If you're trading a lot, you can trade at the money, you can trade near the money, you can trade deep out of the money, you can trade short-term expiry, you can trade long-term expiry. There's a bunch of different ways to trade each of those strategies. So the first thing is, you know, does it have some wrinkle, right? Are they doing something unique, something different, something from other major in our portfolio where, you know, that sort of has two big advantages in our view. One is it creates something else uncorrelated, right? So it's like we're adding another uncorrelated return stream into the portfolio. And it also covers like another path dependence. So like when we talk about portfolio construction and we're like looking at the portfolio, we basically like never talk about like, I don't say never, but like, the conversations are not framed as like, oh, I think this thing is going to do really good. Because our honest thing is like, we don't know and we don't think anyone knows. Certainly at like a macro level, what are stocks going to do, all that kind of stuff. We want to look at like, does this cover some path that is not covered by the rest of the portfolio? 
Like, does this does this cover some contingency, some black swan or some white moose that the rest of the portfolio doesn't cover? Right. So uh, again, like this idea of sort of building the least shitty portfolio. Right. We want to cover as many of these possible patch dependencies as we can, so that sort of however things play out, it should do pretty good. So that's sort of the first thing. And then after that, you get more into just like, I guess, operational and technical due diligence of, you know, are they doing all the regulatory things and do they seem like they know what they're doing or do they have a track record and that kind of stuff. That sounds interesting. Tough, but interesting. How, how, how long have you been building up this core of knowledge? I mean, this, this all seems so detailed and arcane to, I mean, I've read a fair amount about this, at least at a high level, and it's still like... I've only understood like 40% of the last 20 minutes, I would say with like high conviction. Yeah. Which speaks to how well I can explain it, which is not that good at this point, but I'm, I'm working on it. No, I mean, like I, yeah, I, I get it, but I, like I understood the example that you were giving me, but I know that there's a lot of depth to the idea that I just don't grok in the way that you do. Who's been thinking about it. For yeah. The, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I'm working on a white paper on like diversification, which like diversification is like the most boring tried topic. And like invest right, like everyone's read something about like diversification being good. And uh like my opinion is like almost no one actually gets it, right? It's just like you pay lip service to it, but like no one actually see like gets the ma- I really the underlying why it's so compelling and that kind of stuff. But it's really it is it's hard to do in a podcast. I don't know. You gotta have some graphs or something to to sort of make it make sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of those things that everyone tries to do but then kind of like points at themselves for doing poorly. Like we were all really excited that crypto was going to be like this non-correlated asset class and we would be able to diversify into it. But like it basically so far seems to perform almost the exact same way as tech stocks, which may or may not be reasonable. It may or may turn out to be true over the long term. But, and then there's the, I don't know, I'll be interested to see your take on it because I feel like it's just one of those hotly debated things. It's interesting you describe it as like a dial with sort of concentration risk and underperformance risk on either side of it. So I was like the Munger idea of like, the more you know, the less you diversify. But I don't think he's, he, I think he's talking about owning a few good companies, not a hundred year portfolio of like, if you were in a coma, it would still outperform. Yeah. And I think, yeah, you can go back. If you just like take Berkshire stock and you like combine it with some commodities and like some other diversifiers, it's better. Like, because those things are uncorrelated to the Berkshire, right? So I think even if that, you know, some people, it's like, oh, I'm really good at, you know, what I want to do this specific area of investing. It's like, cool, do that and like really go focus on that and then like diversify the rest of your portfolio to enable you to do that. And I, I guess that's maybe to get back to sort of the, the genesis story of this for my partner was he was a real estate developer in the 2000s and he was a good real estate developer. But when 2008 hit, and the entire, it didn't matter how good of a real estate developer you were, right? Like if there's a macro crisis that hits your industry, like my wife works for an events company. It didn't matter how good of an events company you were in March of 2020. It's totally irrelevant. You could have been the best events company in the world. Your revenue went to zero. And, and that was sort of the nature of it. And so, you know, that, that's kind of been, that's how we think about it. It's like, yeah, go find your thing that you're really good at and like spend your time and focus on that. But I think most people tend to back, oh, I run an Amazon business, so I understand Amazon. So I also invest a lot in Amazon stock, and you know they end up like triple levered to like one very specific sort of bet, which when it works well, works really you know works really really well. If you're if you're extremely levered to a very concentrated thing, you're going to have high volatility in your returns. 
could be up, it could be down, but you're gonna have high volatility returns and high volatility tends to hurt in the long run because losses hurt more than gains, right? So a a 5% loss, you only need a 5.3% gain to get back, but a 50% loss, you need a 100% gain to get back. 75% loss, you need a 300% gain to get back, right? There's a, it, it's not one-to-one, the losses hurt more. So that's that's kind of how we think about it. How do you know, and this may be more of a, a career question than a portfolio size question, but either answer would probably be interesting. How do you know when to kind of shift focus between, hey, I need to be more in, I understand this thing really well, I would need to exploit it maximally mode versus I'm in wealth preservation and like slow growth mode when you start to think about some of these things that are more portfolio construction and loss aversion instead of like just executing and and the things that you know and can control. Yeah. So I get my quick thing, but I think that's kind of a false dichotomy. But I go back, the optimal long-run portfolio is always to have the most efficient mix of assets. And you could include assets as your skills, your network, right? We could, we could lump all those things in there as well. And then to sort of lever them in the appropriate way. So I guess it's like, it's kind of never too early to like think about the diversification component of it. I think just from like a pragmatic yeah, I don't know if you have like 200 bucks, did you think about like what hedge funds to invest in? Like probably not. You know what I mean? Like there's some financial threshold or something where, you know, there's enough assets that you know think about it that way. But like, I just finished reading, I read last year, this book called The Origin of Wealth, which I bet you would like it. It's, it's a great book. Okay. You've read it. Yeah. yeah awesome. I've, I've read bits and pieces of it. I haven't done cover to cover, but I really liked it. But it, you know, in a bunch of other bo- books talk about this idea of like, like thinking in bets or like, you know, applying portfolio strategy to your life, right? It's like, tell, one of the examples it gives is Microsoft. I'm trying to read the exact story, but Microsoft basically had like Windows was one of like six different projects that Microsoft was running in parallel because like they didn't know what was going to work. They're like doing MS-DOS and they're doing Windows, they're doing all this other stuff. And so like it, it gets reported, like these stories get reported like, oh, this brilliant person saw that this was the future and built the thing. But like really, and I think that you look at all these stories and it's almost always the same thing. It's like, these companies that last, it's like, no, it was like super hedged. They're like, okay, there's six possible ways you're going to develop. We're going to have something for each industry. We're going to see what takes off. We're going to put assets behind that, that kind of thing. So I think you can apply that same sort of like logic of diversification, all that stuff to other things you're doing, right? Which is like, how do I sort of have a portfolio of bets and, and what, is that, what does that look like? So yeah, I don't know. I think when it comes to your time, like you do functionally get like, I guess you run like a transaction call. Like you can't work on like seven businesses at once, right? Like you end up, you know. I've tried it. It's like very you hard. You can't switch between the seven things. And yeah, it's, it's very hard. So I, I do think like, yeah, at a certain point, like you do need to sort of like focus your time on one thing. And then I think honestly, like for a lot of people, it's like, they're not trying to do like the long-term wealth maximizing thing. They're trying to do like what they want to do with their life. It's fun and whatever. And like, that's cool, you know? Like, yeah. It, Okay, this is a question that I'd just like to ask a variety of people, and I feel like you you might have a good answer to. Since you're very, I don't know, a theme of a lot of what you talk about is like the long game, the long perspective, focus on compounding. I'm always on the hunt for who is playing the longest possible game. And just like more and more examples of people who are thinking over like decades or even generations. Are, are there like heroes in your life or people that you've read or investors that you've studied that are that are really good examples of, of playing an, an absurdly long game. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously we're trying to do that. I'm trying to think of other... I think like the story of like Ed Thorpe is really interesting. If you look at like he was... Uh, he sort of like took the Kelly... There's actually one of like... I would love to write a book on like alternative histories of like different things happening. So Ed Thorpe was... I forget exactly his relationship to Kelly, but he was like one of the early practitioners of the Kelly Criterion. He had a hedge fund. I think he lived in Newport Beach, California. But it was like... I think he, the hedge fund, I'm, I'm going to miss some of these, but that's what I'm saying for 15 years or something. And he was like smoking Warren Buffett, like smoking Warren Buffett. And basically his partner ended up engaging in all this fraud. The fund got shut down in like the late eighties and like it never went anywhere. And like, I do want to do some alternative history of like, if he was like still around today, like would he, like, would we talk about Warren Buffett or would we just talk about Ed Thorpe? Because like he actually was, he, he actually performed. A lot of, I, I, I'm trying to make, I'm saying he was smoking more, but I don't know if that's totally true, but he was performing extremely well over extremely long I think this is time. the second podcast in um, a row that Ed Thorpe has come up. And so, yeah, I think he's interesting. <laughs> I just thought, was just talking to David Senra about him too. Okay. He's, he's just yeah. like, I think he restarted with a separate fund that was smaller, but like got his own track record. There's just like, he worked on a computer with Claude Shannon when he was like trying to do roulette. Like if I'm remembering, it's a wild story. The, uh, yeah, he has a crazy story. There's... Mm -hmm. There's a book called Fortune's Formula that's like a really good, it's like Thorpe and Kelly and all those guys. And uh, A Man for All Markets is his book, yeah, right? That's his yeah. like biography. Yeah, I think my sense is like when the fund closed down, he like already made an insane amount of money and he was like yeah. living in a mansion in California. <laughs> so I'm like, eh. I'm good, I'm good. Okay, so what is the long game for, for Mutiny? How do, you, how do you see this playing out? Yes, I mean, I, I think the way we think about things is it really isn't like, you know, we're talking about like the portfolio and stuff, like a hundred year timeline, right? It's like, okay, we can invest in this thing. And if this thing is going to blow up in the next hundred years, like that's a, no, a non-starter for us. Like that's too, you know, we can't, we don't want to take that sort of concentration risk or that sort of, that sort of risk. I guess that that's like the frame we tend to operate in, you know, trying to like build that into like how the business is run, how everything is operating, making the parts redundant. I'm a big like SOPs guys and procedures and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of like a big, a big part of how we operate. But I think sort of our broad view of things is people tend to have short memories. You know, people tend to look at what did well over the last year, three years, five years, 10 years, and things tend to get concentrated into those assets. And then things change. You have these phase shift in markets where dynamics change. And so having this broadly diversified portfolio is effectively allowing you to capitalize on that, right? You, you own some of the thing that is doing well and outperforming, and as it's going up, you're selling some of that and buying the thing that's underperforming in the belief that at some point the story is going to reverse, right? And so I think like, I mean, commodities are like a good, like commodities did so bad. Commodity trend is sort of a the, the standard approach to the a common approach to trading commodities where you're looking for commodities with strong price trends and you're going along or short them. And uh, a strategy did really well in 2008, it was like you know, it got built as crisis itself. It was really terrible. It was exciting, and then from like 2010 to 2020, basically, it just sucked. Like it just like it went nowhere. Everyone hated it. No one wanted to do it. And then like, sort of, I think sort of starting late 2020 to present, you know, we've all seen the commodity stuff in the news, oil prices, blah blah. blah. It's doing great, right? And you know, our view is like, did we predict that? Did we foresee that? No, right? But that tends to be how the long the long term of history goes, right? You have these rotations between assets that come in and out of favor. And so the the optimal way to do it, in our view, is to to have a balanced portfolio with exposure to all these different pieces. So you're like, 
I mean, when you're rebalancing these, are you just kind of betting on a reversion to the mean, basically? Yeah, kind of. If you look like the, the permanent portfolio is like a really interesting way to like look at it. If you look at, you can like Google examples like the history of the permanent portfolio and like how the individual pieces perform versus how the under, underlying pieces. And like if you look at the like individual pieces, like they're pretty like gold's pretty volatile historically, stocks are pretty volatile historically, bonds and cash not so volatile historically. But the combination of all of them is it's just it looks like it's just a straight line. It's just it's like really smooth straight line. I think it's like if you like run all these like model portfolios, I think it's like the only thing that had positive returns in like each of the last six decades or something. But it like never shoots the lights out. Like you're never gonna make 50% in a year with the permanent portfolio because you're super diversified, right? But you're also, you know, the hope is you're never gonna have a 50% drawdown either, like you would in a more concentrated portfolio. And so that's from a portfolio construction perspective, like that's how we think about it, right? We want these diversified and correlated things with different return drivers. They can combine to form a better long-term compounding growth rate. This is a very, I mean, over and over again, I feel like I've heard you say something like you have, most people think X, we think Y. How have you like cultivated and how do you entrain that unique mindset to like kind of hold your, your line and your set of beliefs when the world is kind of shouting something else at you every day? I feel like that's a very unique skill. I mean, I do think I have like a very high degree of like, like I think in 99% of areas of my life, I just like kind of go along with it. I mean, it's like, it's like, I have like contrarian ideas about very few things, right? Like there's just a couple small things that I'm not sure I'm like particularly good at that. I think in this specific instance, there's like a lot of things, I guess, you know, probably like, you know, like you and probably like most of your extras, I'm curious and I want to figure things out. And I think like with this, this sort of thing, I just like kept trying, you know, I'm always just trying to like prove it wrong. Like I'm probably trying to like, get my wrong about this, right? Like I, that's always the paranoid concern in the back of my head. And I'm like talking to all these people that are uh, like, what do you know that I don't know? Right. Like that. I love that. There's a famous scene in like the big short movie where he's in, uh, he's like trying to find his counterpart. Michael Burry that uh, Steve Carell plays is trying to find, I'm not, it's not who is it? Uh, Steve Carell plays. I forget the guy's name, but he's trying to find his counterpart on the trade, right? Like he's shorting all these mortgage bonds and he flies out to this, conference in Vegas and he meets it's like this guy, his counterpart is this guy in New Jersey who like is a total douche and is like not taking care of his investors. And so like as soon as he finds out, he's like, he's like, I want to load up on this trade as much as possible because now I know who I'm trading against and the guy's an idiot. Right. And so it's like I'm always like, who's the other person? Right. Someone's taking the other side of the trade. And do they know something I don't know? And so I think that's kind of like the constant thing, right? Like does who's taking the other side of this trade? Why are they doing it? Do they know something I don't know? Where does that go? And I think in this instance, it's like I've been like asking that question and trying to get to the root of it for like four years. And like I said, you know, like I think the answers are most things I said. It's like people don't like people tend to look at their portfolio as a series of line items. They don't like that this one thing goes down. They want everything to go up at the same time. So I think some of it's just like I guess call them like psychological biases or just sort of like decision tendencies. I think that, that was a part of, of the big short, if I remember right, too. You know, the, part of the short thesis was. The people on the other side of this trade don't want to imagine what this failure is like because it's painful. It, it is like conjuring up an apocalyptic event. And then and then you have to believe it enough to bet on it. And there's very few people that can want psychologically like do that. Yeah. And I think even like uh, the, the big short time, the best, 
there's actually an interesting follow-up paper that looks at like how the big short funds performed after the big short, and they like all kind of, they all kind of did bad. Um, so it's like it goes back to the white moose kind of thing. It's like you can't you can't bet on the bad thing happening all the time. You, you sort of need to have both those things. But yeah, I think like a lot of it, I think it's just like a short-term memory, right? It's like you know, no one remembers. Like I give the commodities example, but like you know, people like what's been doing well, especially for negative events. Every time I get in my head that like something did well and then I go back and check, it did less well than I thought it did. That I've been like telling myself in my like, in my narrative in my head. My entry price is always higher than I remember it if I don't check it. Like <laughs> always. Okay, last question. I feel like I've learned so much about all of these things. What is the mental model or like aphorism or heuristic that you think you reference the most frequently? Reality has a surprising amount of detail. That is a very good one. I think I got that from you. I use that often. Yeah, it's there's a guy, I, I think there's a software engineer that wrote a blog post and uh, I loved it. I wrote another post about his post, but yeah, he coined the term. I think his name was John Salvatier or something. But yeah, I don't, that's, the example I use is like, this is actually a fun thing if like you can do it after the call or so. Take out a piece of paper and like try to draw a can opener, like how a can opener works. Like this is the handle, this is the blah, blah, blah. And you're like, that's a can opener. How complicated? I use a can opener all the time. It's so simple. <laughs> Try to draw it. You can't do it. It's super hard. You will not be able to draw a functional can opener the way the gears intersect with the handle and the pins that go into the gears. And like a can opener is like the simplest thing in the world. There's like five pieces to the whole thing. And so like as soon as you get into anything else, right? How to run a business, a biology, your health, whatever. It's like infinitely complex. And I think... I'm constantly reminding myself and trying to remind others to have some humility around that respect. Right? And I think that comes out, you know, this comes back to the anti-fragility and, you know, it's what the famous Mark Twain line of just not, no, if you don't know that hurts you, it's what you know for sure that just ain't so, right? And so if you, if you realize that you don't know very much, you can avoid a lot of those, those things that really get into you. So I, yeah, I end up talking about it all the time. And I'm sure you've know, like, my God, this work project, this will take like a week. I'll just like knock this out. And it's like two months later, I'm like, holy crap. There were so many details to executing on this thing. And uh, that was way harder than, you know, and, and that happens over and over. So I love it. Yeah. And the, and the less, the, the more outside your wheelhouse you are, the less of those details, you know, are going to be there going in. And the, the expert is the person who who knows where the details lie and how to navigate them. Yeah. I've used that, that idea a lot. I remember reading it in your blog post. And I think went back and read the original that you linked to. And yeah, it's, it's an exceptionally helpful, and to your point, humility-inducing idea, which is something that's good for all of us. Thank you so much, Taylor, for taking the time and at least attempting to teach me some things that I wish I understood better. And I'm very glad and grateful that you are building Muni Funds because I think it's something that the world needs. And it's just exciting to catch up and see what you've been working on. Appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, this was super fun. Thanks for having me. I feel like I rambled and was mostly incoherent, but hopefully people get something out of it. And uh, yeah, man, always a pleasure to catch up. I appreciate you hanging out with us today. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, similar episodes you might also like, uh, the episode with Andrew Wilkinson uh, talking about his career, how he built and bought a whole bunch of profitable internet businesses, starting with an agency that he started when he was a teenager. Uh, another that's a little more investment focused is Phil Huber. Uh, he's also an author. He wrote an amazing book about the long variety, long and wide variety of alternative investment strategies and vehicles. And that is a, a deep, deep dive with another brilliant investor and author. 
If you'd like to support the show, leave a quick review um, or, or text this episode to a friend or coworker. Those are the two single greatest ways to help this show grow, help us reach more people. And we'll continue to get great guests and be able to deliver knowledge nectars to your brain through your ear holes. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you very much. I really appreciate you hanging out with us today. This is all about laughing and learning, building leverage, and compounding our faces off. What our brains aren't evolved to comprehend is how much leverage is possible in modern society. There's a revolution going on, man. Uh, Go pay attention to it. Get a part of it. Get exposed to it. You're going to make money along the way. You're going to have fun. The call to adventure. This is the new form of leverage. Take a few quiet moments for yourself, breathe deep, and be well. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundal from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.